0: We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Niagara people, and their elders, past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded, and flood media is recorded on stolen land.
1: Hello, welcome to episode two of Flood Summer Nights, where we are uh, a bit of a digression from the usual flood cast takes, but still all the hot takes with moist mates that you've been, you know, coming to love it's been um very moist lately in <laughs> yeah summer brisbane summer weather that's why we're doing it baby um so yeah this is our uh, episode two previously if you've listened to the last one it was uh, just recap was with um joe dave and robbie looking at the sort of contemporary moment of capitalism where we are now um and this episode is looking to the future um we we're going to discuss the utopia, the, the dream, hashtag goals, that we're wanting to aim with our movement. Um, so yeah, tonight it's, uh, you got me, uh, who's Callum, um, with uh, Dr. Amy McMahon and Dr. Liam Flanity, socialism, <laughs> 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 two <laughs> doctors, um, yes, to sort of discuss this. Um, yeah, do you guys want to start off with anything before we get into it?
2: Um, yeah, thanks, Callum, and, um, yeah, it's kind of fun to to take a step back, I guess. Um. Our normal floodcasts are often, um, we seem to alternate with, between uh, trashing the Labour Party one week and then responding to some other contem- like, contemporary event another week, and so it's nice to be able to step back and, um, kind of talk a bit of, I guess, theory, um, for lack of a better word, um, and I think it's partly because we've noticed we've all been we've been quite active around Brisbane in sort of left circles, particularly in the Greens, and um, often we don't have the chance to really talk about what the the vision is. We often all agree to on particular policies or demands or movement things, tactics, whatever, but that kind of long term thing. You know it's a conversation you have over beers uh but it's rarely one that gets recorded or written down because we're all too busy trying to you know win hearts and minds um build the next uh you know event door knock whatever so it's nice to be able to do this um and I'm particularly keen to to be able to talk about yeah, what does beach socialism look like effectively um I don't know if, if anybody wanted to sort of kick off with any thoughts, Amy.
0: Well, I have been thinking a little bit this week about um, the kind of options we have available to us for what the future will look like, for what our future will look like. And we sort of have three broad paths, I think, business as usual where we all fry to a crisp and then our ashes are scattered on the rising oceans. (laughs) Um, We have the kind of uh, vision of the future that we're going to outline here, Um, which is, you know, liberation and everyone enjoying the shared wealth of humanity and enjoying the planet together. Um, Or another kind of dystopian path where we do address climate change to some degree, but we have deepening inequality and the benefits that come from decarbonisation are held by a small few. Mm. Um, So thinking about... You know what kind of cities, what kind of um, lives do we have if Elon Musk was put in charge of mm. crafting our future, mm. and uh, or someone like Jeff Bezos or you know these um, Gates. these big um, the evil geniuses like we have all these options available to us that could um, you know think about for example like we could roll out electric vehicles on the roads and we end up with. You know we've we've still got people stuck in congestion and um we still have these like mega companies that are reaping all the benefits and all the profits and all the wealth Mm. um that is passed off as you know um dealing with climate change and creating a more progressive society, but yeah. it's only for the few. So,
2: billions of people die in the third world and even in, you know, the poorer parts of the West.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so I think it's really important for us to articulate the kind of vision that we have and what we're fighting for um, to fight against that and to also fight against the risk of, um, you know, just uh, worming along with incrementalism and, um, which is what like some of our distant cousins on the center left would would you know are aiming for, um, <laughs> making sure that we have this clear vision that that sets out where where we're going um, and why we're doing it.
1: And I think it's also important to look at it in terms of credible utopias and not something that's so far removed from people's ability to imagine that it's It seems impossible and therefore you're not taken seriously. So an example would be like, you know, a Star Trek sort of communism, you know, super far into the future, but something that is still very credible and tangible for people to be like, oh, yeah, we can actually make that now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of on the left, uh, you know... A kind of like oh well you know the goal is full communism which is like you know absolutely every possible social crisis or like social contradiction i should say is resolved the state has withered away we manage ourselves autonomously blah 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 and if you went out and you sort of door knocked and you chatted to you know ordinary people they'd be like yeah but humans aren't like that we can't just say that we'll have this thing that's, you know, everyone will get along as, you know, Shangri-La kind of like, uh, you know, utopia that sounds more like a, a Christian sort of vision of heaven or something than it does a, a real world sort of um thing um and on the other hand yeah you don't but on the other hand you don't want to fall into well because utopias are not possible therefore we should just deal with you know minor tweaks to the system we've got here we do need a really radical vision because i think amy's right i mean the choices are Socialism or barbarism, as Rosa Luxemburg said. There's also the third option, which is the mutual ruin of the contending classes, in Marx's <laughs> phrase. You know, if we if we if we genuinely fuck up, like it's all over for everyone. Um, but two out of the three options sound like pretty bad options. Only one of them sort of uh, is worth um, is worth fighting for. Um, and I do think business as usual. Um, you know, like the idea that the way things are going at the moment could be sustained for much longer um it's already pretty bloody clear that that's not the case i mean australia's been relatively sheltered like you know the middle class in australia's been relatively sheltered from these things although it's starting to feel the pinch economically but if you look across the world the political impacts of uh a a capitalism that's not able to you know well robbie and um dave we're talking about this i think a bit you know like the, the crises is unable to resolve are starting to have real world political Im- implications um as well as the the ecological stuff it's just um it's you know some some new vision has to come and it's about time that socialism is is that is that vision
0: yeah yeah i think this is also important tactically which is what the next um flood summit is going to be about having this vision is a really important part of how we're going to build it how we're going to get people on board how we're going to build the kind of movement that can achieve the vision that we're aiming for Mm.
2: um yeah well that's the you know what so what then is the what then is the vision um it's always i think theory is dumb because people spend a lot of time talking about theory um And they don't spend enough time going out there and just uh changing the world and i think socialism the idea of socialism is you could spend a lot of time trying to think about what it is a lot of those things can only actually be fixed in the world what socialism is and what it will look like are things that have to be the practical problems less so theoretical ones i think socialism as our as a concept is a pretty simple one to grasp, right? And I think it's, um, you know, it's a society where the, the bulk of the economy is collectively owned and democratically controlled, right? That's the basic thing. And like the profit motive has been removed as the driver of the economy or replaced by satisfying human needs and human wants and desires. Um, it's not a just a, a kind of poor it's not like what is it the joke about um, the USSR where it's like everyone was equal but everyone was equally poor. It's it's a it's an enriching of, of human needs and wants, um, and where I think crucially wage labour is no longer the way we organise work in our lives. Um, so I think that's sort of like a bit of a summary. Um, but what that means that's a bit dry in a way. What does it mean for the what I was thought we might start off with is like what does that mean for the individual life before we get into all the like annoying things of like how you're actually going to build it under conditions of you know ecological breakdown blah 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 will you still have a market will you not all these sorts of things what would socialism look like for you know for you and i for for anybody for your for your average person in the street for 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 a poor person for um you know for for anybody what what as an individual what does it what does it mean do you mean
1: what I want it to be? Well, yeah, Like, let's, <laughs> let's let's get the wish list
2: up, right? Well, I know
1: for Amy and I both, you know, full-time workers, nine, nine to five, well, I'm seven to three, huh? are you nine to five?
0: At uh, eight to four, eight 30. To four.
1: Um, yeah, well, like, I guess the biggest thing for us would be just that shorter working week and, like, the gradual decrease over time of how much we spend working mm. um, and, this is again one of those things that we were saying before. How you know, if we don't articulate these visions of what we want it to be, the capital, our capitalist masters will do it for us. Because in my workplace, they're already talking about a shorter work week. But what it is is, you know, a nine-day fortnight, but you work longer days. You know, it, these things mm. are being offered because people yeah. want yep. these things, but they're being co-opted. Yep. and you know, it's like the whole flexibility with um you know, working life was again co-opted and now there's massive overtime, like the, all these things, these desires of the working class can be co-opted by the right wing to suit their needs if we don't articulate the vision. Yeah,
0: and as a way of solving crisis. Um, yeah, I think work is really central to what um, the vision that we have, like, you um, shorter working hours, um, but also recrafting the, like the relationship that people have to work and the role that work plays in people's lives so that it's not something, you know, I, the other day I sent a text message to a friend and I said, um, work is just, meaning you can't get angry at your boss, otherwise you're going to be homeless. Um, (laughs) And she was like, that's exactly right. And so how can we recreate a society where people aren't um, compelled to stay in jobs where they're being um, exploited or they're feeling miserable um, and you have enough to get by um, and also have enough time to, to spend with your family and friends? Like that is a pretty... Pretty basic vision, right? I think that, and that's what the union movement had been fighting for um, for a long time. But somehow this has slipped away, and now in Australia, like we have some of the longest working hours um, in the world. Um, so how can we rebalance this in, in a meaningful way, not just in a way that it kind of you know helps firms, but helps us?
1: It's almost a more broader thing on looking at, and I know Max and Joe talked about this um, in a Radio Reversal episode. Um, at one point about the politics of time and how it's actually, you know, the broader thing is you want less time working but also less time having to worry about meeting your basic needs because, you know, if you have universal basic services, all of that is covered. You have you don't have to spend all that, you know, unpaid time just trying to survive and so suddenly you have this flourishing yeah. and space to for individuals but then also individuals as collectives to realize all these different potentials
2: yeah totally and i think the thing that i think about in this and i think it's partly the reason why we've sort of i talk about beach socialism a lot and a lot of people i think uh in in our sort of circles to talk about something similar or if, you know i suppose fully automated luxury co- communism as a sort of a jokey way to say it um is just to reclaim that socialism is about, like, having a lot more fucking time to have fun and a lot more time to just do the things you want. So, I think it's a first principle. So, before like, I think having more time is your first, like, to yourself. And I think there's a bit of a a thing there where I think if we talk too much about, like, oh, well, let's reorganise the values of work and we'll democratically decide what's important and then we'll put people to work and what's needed and so on, is a certain vision of socialism, and I think it's part of it. But I think often what's lost when we talk about socialism like that is that actually our primary goal is to do less and less of the things that are, like you know, just, just bare necessities. Like, anything that we don't love or couldn't come to find meaning in doing in and of itself... Let's reduce the amount of time we have to do that. So whether that's through automation and and, and technology, whether that's through better social organization and planning, um, those sorts of things. Getting rid of the profit motive means that a lot of fake needs are gotten rid of. And, you know, the idea that we might be able to reduce the working week to something like 20 hours. I mean, that was something that Keynes was saying in like the 30s and 40s, um, that by the 21st century, we should be able to have achieved that. I think that's the thing we do need to be able to say. That doesn't mean we don't talk about what that 20 hours a week is, how it's organized, how we democratically decide on that, how people are inspired or compelled to do that, you know, that work. But I think the first and foremost thing is, like, let's make sure that, you know, it was like um, the... um, when we were running Max's campaign for Griffith for the Greens, one of the things we talked about was a lot, and it was actually on one of our flyers, our first flyers, was like, you only live once, you know? And it's really cheesy, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, YOLO, let's have socialism. But, you know, like, you, what the fuck is the point of living if you're spending almost all of your time either at work, getting depressed about work or going to sleep and then waking up and going, fuck, I have to go back to work. And then on your weekends, you're just like... I suppose I'll just nap and do my chores. And
1: everything else can sort of flow from an improvement in that. Like, you know, when we talk about improving the, or not improving, decreasing the alienation between people and, you know, winding back, you know, just the disconnection that has really just smothered, um, I guess, our society Mm. for a long time now. You know, a lot of that just, you know, some, you know, a good chunk of it comes from our relationship to the means of production, yes, but also it is just we don't have the fucking time to connect with people. And so I felt that a lot in the last few months. You know, I went from being unemployed to full-time and now suddenly I have no time. Mm. And so my connections with friends and family have just dropped off massively. And then the weariness and toll it takes on you makes that worse. So the improvement of time and access to it will just again have flow-on effects that solve a lot of the other problems that we're trying to fight for.
2: yeah the the kind of the social problems right and i think the idea this you know it's kind of like the difference between you know i often think about this if you take a holiday that's like three days as one thing right or even a week you start to wind down but by the fifth day or something, you're like, oh shit, I have to wind back up for work. Whereas it's a qualitative difference between that and a holiday where you have six months, you, you start to fundamentally think about time differently because it's like a day can go by and all I did was just hang out with my mates and I don't worry about that. Like I don't think, oh wow, you know, I should have you know, gotten in that appointment with the so-and-so or I should have, you know, done my tax or, you know, that sort of a thing. Like, it's fundamentally different if you just have all this time and you can only imagine that if, if everyone only worked 20 hours a week and had all the rest of time, the time, the cynical fucking neoliberal people would be like, oh, everyone would just be lazy and just sit around. like idle poor. Yeah, yeah. Bullshit. Everyone would be out just doing all sorts of good stuff, right? They genuinely would be.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, I've got this quote here from um, – there's this lovely book called A Planet to Win. Uh, can you remember what the author's names are? That, oh,
2: it? yeah. Well, that's like um, the people who are behind all of the Green New Deal stuff. Actually, also the um, the Green New Deal that got up in the UK Labor Party. Elizabeth Stony. Yeah, Kate Arnoff. Yes. And yep.
0: there's a couple of other authors. But they have this – there's a really beautiful chapter about their um, – reimagining of work under a Green New Deal. So they talk a lot about like what kind of productive work could we create for people um, that's outside of a profit motive that gives people a whole lot of time Um, to do the things they want to do and there's just this beautiful quote that I wanted to read give us time for long dinners with friends and plenty of organic wine outdoor adventures enhanced by legal weed grown and harvested by well-paid agricultural workers skinny dipping in lakes that reflect moon and starlight Uh, it's just so beautiful it's like yes can like can you imagine what your life would be like if you um you know weren't um, stuck at really long hours or you weren't otherwise stressed about not having enough hours like what would your life look like i think about this often like how much freedom do we have under the current situation like not much like for for me and callum and most of us like our hours are, are spoken for um from when you wake up to when you go to sleep like imagine like what would you be able to do like I would spend more time with my niece and mm. I would like read more books and I'd, you know, spend money on Auslan classes instead of you yeah. Know, petrol. Yeah. Um, and this is really exciting. Yeah. And the idea of beach socialism, like that you have this time to go to the beach and just hang out. Mm. Um, it's really beautiful. And that
2: that's universal, I think, is the other beautiful part of all of this, right? Because I suppose, um, you know, if, if you had – if you had good conditions like this, if you're well off, you only had to work a small amount, you didn't. You weren't stressing about your bills and all this sort of stuff, but everyone around you was, that's not the same thing, right? You are a social being, and no matter how much you try to s- sort of sever yourself from those sorts of ties, it won't have that same organic, real feeling of being part of a society and a culture where that is offered to... Well, that is guaranteed to everybody. And I think that's what you... I suppose you were kind of hinting at, Callum, is that sense of like the alienation and stuff that we've got at the moment. Imagine that being swept aside by knowing that you're out at the beach and fucking everybody could just be there. They've got their housing uh, guaranteed, their is all taken care of, their education all the way through their life is taken care of. They have all the childcare they need. They, they can take a free bus down to the beach. Um, at the beach there's disability support for anyone who wants to go to the beach and, and needs disability support. You know, the public space is publicly owned so you don't have to pay any money to you know, maybe you get your ice cream token from the, from the state's ice, ice cream uh, they, uh, No, that's, <laughs> a, ju- that's <laughs> <ice> a joke <laughs> that, <I don't laughs> If you're listening, libertarians I promise
0: we need to do a floodcast on public food sometime <laughs> I know day, Amy's day. big on, on yeah. public
2: food i think that's a little bit down the track but i, I certainly think that all those basic uh, the basics you need to the whole point is the basics you need to live a good life are guaranteed so it's not just that the work hours are yeah. reduced but you're not compelled to do that 20 or however many like i mean who knows yeah, what the actual yeah, yeah. number will be yeah. but um that you're not compelled to do that because if you don't you're gonna be homeless yeah. and i think this is a really um you know, fascinating idea about socialism is that that's actually viable, mm, mm. and it and it flies in the face of your kind of yeah neoliberal uh, conservative mindset about the what drives people to do a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is you know if they're not forced to do it, they won't they won't do anything.
0: Yeah, yeah. and we know it's possible in a, in a society where we have like increased technology. We know these things are technologically. Um, possible we have um, like massive increases in productivity that you know haven't mm. you know the assumption was that as as the economy got more productive we would have more time and we'd have higher wages and it mm. hasn't eventuated um if which anything is the opposite yeah yeah which isn't a surprise and so we know that there's all this scope and if we were recrafting Um, you know, work and labor and and getting rid rid of things that aren't socially necessary and things that are just done for a profit motive, Mm. then you do have all this time and you have Mm. all this wealth. And, you know, we talk a lot about this idea of communal luxury, like you've touched on some of these things like the 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 need to have these, like, incredible collective resources that everyone is sharing um, that you can go out and you know you've got, like, you know, beautiful art centres and beautiful sports fields and, like, yeah, you go down to the beach and there's all these, like, lovely facilities and these shared things rather than what we have at the moment where, you know, if you want nice things, you have to find a way to buy them for yourself mm. Um or you're relying on, like, sometimes, like, Kind of shoddy public resources, yeah. Yeah. public facilities. Um, so how can we have this, like this? Yeah, this idea of communal luxury, where you're able to, like, um, yeah, I love this idea of the of the state's ice cream store. I don't. I, I think. I think that should be. Yeah, uh, I think that should be part of what we're talking about. Like,
2: yeah. What was? I mean, I think Dave Eden had that the whole everyone gets ice cream thing was was his slogan for a while. Yeah. So. You know why not? It's the whole bread and roses thing, right? It's not just the bread. It's not just about the the bare means to of subsistence. It's a, it's also about roses. Like yeah. people, the people deserve roses.
0: Yeah, yeah. and yeah. within this, we're we're also making an assumption that as people's material conditions improve, as we have more time, um, that there's other big social issues that. Um, Will be partly addressed by that, but we'll also have time to address like sexism and racism, mm. and um, you know, giving people the time and power to work on these these really big social issues mm. that, like at the moment, like it's really hard.
1: And not just the
2: time and the power, but like the resources to deal with them as yeah, well. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah,
2: and yeah, and I suppose this yeah, there's, I mean that 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 opens a whole big thing around how we conceive of those dealing with those oppressions and those sorts of things going into going into socialism because there is a, there is an argument that socialism just will by necessity by like inevitably just deal with them because once you get rid of kind of class power um, then all that, that basic inequality will lead to yeah everyone having the capacity to overcome all the other ones. I think that's partly true. The other side to it is the struggle for socialism is a struggle of uniting the people in and of itself so even just trying to even just trying to get there even just and i mean the bernie sanders campaign and you know the ultra left can fucking have out as much as they want but you look at the commun- like the kind of message that's coming out of that and also the people who are campaigning for that and they're all saying we we all deserve the same thing and we all deserve a better life, whether we're Latino or or black or white, gay straight, you know, the man, woman, you know, the Bernie Sanders line. Um and I had and I did just do the hand gesture by the way. <laughs> <laughs> whether you're yeah no, okay, <laughs> one one day I'll do a whole podcast as Bernie Sanders. Um but that that process in and of itself where we've where we've locked onto a common vision and we're fighting alongside each other because, as Bernie says, you know, like, are you, turn to your neighbor, are you willing to fight for for them to be able to go to the beach and get everything they need to live a good life and go to the beach whenever they want, as much as you're willing to fight for yourself to go to the beach. And, you know, that person can look fundamentally different to you, even have different ideas about, you know, how they want to live their life or whatever, but... Are you willing to fight for that? And I think that's part of the, the the thing about socialism is not it's not just that like somehow if we get the right policies in place, then all these other things will go away. No, in in getting in trying to get there, we'll build we'll build a new kind of person. Uh, yeah, theoretically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think
0: yeah, the next the next uh, flood summer nights is going to go into this in a bit more detail, like the tactics that we're going to need. Mm. To, to get there and achieve this.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I don't know whether this is more like suited to the next flood summer nights, but I think a sort of live question in all of this is the role of the state and that mm. uh, quip about the state ice cream shop kind of got me thinking because I think something that's come through quite strongly in the UK, especially in the discourse around like Corbynism um, and UK labour is that people don't necessarily want a return to the welfare state or like you know previous models of state ownership um, that a lot of people's experiences with those things are quite negative and that we can't just recreate that model. So I guess I'm interested to hear how you see some of these new forms of social life and and work and, and those kind of things, and the state's ice cream shop working without there being a sort of nanny state or kind of big welfare state return necessarily.
2: mm yeah, that's a that's yeah, actually that's good. Good to jog us out of just the pure excitement of um, you know, the dream and start to think about the the practicalities of how, how it would actually work. Um, does anybody have any I've got many thoughts about this because the state is has been one of my primary preoccupations in my brain for the last year or two. But does anybody else wanna f-
1: I don't really have, guess? Yeah, I don't think I have a real solid position on it because I've really over the last year one to two years still really trying to develop my sort of understanding of how and you know solid understanding of historical um examples and how it's happened before and you know what Mm. would be the best way to do it in terms of you know do you have like a big state bureaucracy or do you try to decentralize that has Mm. any of that ever worked Mm. so yeah sort of really not don't have a solid position on it so sort of can't hear what other people think Yeah. yeah
0: Yeah, I think it's an important question because um, for a lot of people, when we talk about these big visions, people are like, oh, but the state's terrible. It's really inefficient. They've had really bad experiences. Um, And, you know, all of us have had those experiences of like really slow um, central bureaucracy and thinking like, yeah, how is it possible that the system that we have at the moment could achieve... um, you know, these big things, I think um, part of it is kind of movement stuff that you were talking about before, Liam. And I think um, the other thing is talking about democratisation and decentralisation. I think there is a role for a state for many things. There's many things where we would want um, sort of coherent thinking and standardisation across um particular sectors and where there's a lot of benefit in coming together in that way. I think there's plenty of things we can be achieving on a smaller scale Um, and thinking about the role of state as like a a tool for redistribution as well and that's the key thing that we're going to be needing to do over the next 10, 20, 50 years is massive redistribution um, and how we would do that without the state, how we would do that with something that's a radically decentralised, mm. um, I haven't been able to work out yet.
2: Well, I don't think any of us will, right? I, I mean, I think that's these will deal with them progressively as we get, you know. like The, the sad part about this, um, dear flood listener, is, and this may come as a shock to you, the Australian left is in a pretty weak state um i don't know if you if you if you're on twitter maybe you might think otherwise but um we're we're pretty weak we're not getting this anytime soon and i think as we get closer and closer we'll start to work out what the contours of and you know because it's always a step i think the other the other thing is to say about this is like there's a really interesting um and i'll get back to the state in a second but um there's always this question of like when do you achieve socialism like when is it you know it's very easy for the Ultra left who who believe in, in, in full communism to kind of know when that's happened. That's when the state has withered away, all private property's been abolished, blah 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 blah. Like and there's a you know borders have been abolished, blah blah blah. Like that's when you've achieved full communism. Everything up until there has been will be class struggle. Um, But if you want to actually deal with the real world, um, you have to think a little bit about, like, what are the transitional formations that socialism might have to adopt at each point? And at a certain point, obviously, you know, private capital and, like, the finance markets, the labor market, all those things will be abolished. But there are so many steps along the way that are effectively different variants of something called socialism, as long as the, the thrust of it is towards this vision um what was i going to say why was i going why was i saying that i was saying that because oh yeah how do we know what the balance between like decentralization and centralization is how do we know the balance between for instance workers co-ops vis-a-vis things done by state institutions how do we know you know all those sorts of questions markets versus planning markets versus planning right and i think there's there's obviously always i mean i believe there'll be place a place for for our market or markets. Um, and it's something that Sam Gindon um, points out in a really, really great article called... I cannot remember what it's called. Um, maybe we'll put the link or something in the um, SoundCloud. Um, but it's uh, where he sort of says, you know, the only markets that we're not willing to have are capital markets and labour markets. Petty commodity markets, like like, you know, if you produce stuff in your... Spare hours outside of your 20 or whatever it is that you're doing And want to sell that to your neighbor or whatever Like that's fine The question is you cannot buy and sell labor You know like the idea that a boss could hire and fire And if you fire someone they're going to go on the fucking street um, And then the other thing is like directing massive private capital That should also go But yeah the question of what the balance with markets planning all that sort of stuff i guess the basic thing is that the state is a tool that we have to take very seriously and i think the left has taken not remotely seriously um for a really long time much to its detriment and we're starting to take it more seriously now because we saw the kind i mean it was a big failure electorally um last year for the uk labor party but the kind of thinking they were doing around transforming the state um was a very significant step forward i think for the left and i do think there's probably people around the bernie thing thinking about similar things um is how would you transform the state to be able to actually even remotely implement these things because the state as we know it is a um is a state that is run by capitalist interests so how do we create a state that is run in the interests of the people? And I mean, the, the sort of Leninist argument is you have to smash this one and replace it with a new one. And I just don't buy that because I don't think we can just create a state out of, out of nothing. So how do we take the one we've got and, and fundamentally, and that means all the state institutions from the parliament to the judiciary, to the military, police prisons, um, education reform, the civil service, all these things that are, not because there's been an evil plan, I think this is the other thing, not because there's, I mean there have been evil plans, but not primarily because there's been an evil plan on behalf of like a handful of cabal of capitalists to create a state that fundamentally works for them and then they just operate it like puppet masters, that's not the case, it's kind of like this ecology of institutions that just protects the status quo and if you step out of line then you get discipline back into line because the power in society is weighted towards the capitalists and so they control more or less how the state works. And if you want to transform the state so it can deliver universal basic services uh you know start legislating for reducing the working week and all this stuff you're going to come up against a shit ton of resistance from within the state and from outside of the state and it's in that struggle that you'll start to see oh we need organs of popular power outside the state to put pressure on it to take over certain functions of the state at the same time you're going to need a plan once you get into the state about the specific reforms you're going to do to the state if you get into it like a five year plan
0: a look, uh, you know,
2: hey, I mean, I'm not going to make any um, any uh, incriminating comments about Stalin on this show. Yeah, um, I,
0: I think those are really good points, Liam. And one of the hallmarks of the state that we're dealing with at the moment is that it's been hollowed out of um, like service delivery, um, mm. for want of a better word. Like historically in Australia, we built um, like a lot of social housing, housing. Um, we have seen a lot of services sold off and assets sold off sorry and we just had a a big um, a crisis here in Queensland last year when um, a bunch of prisons were privatised and the result was terrible for both the um, people in the prisons and the workers and the demand was okay you need to bring this back into state control because we know what happens when um, these kind of essential services I'm not saying prisons are essential services actually I think we're all good abolitionists here but things like education, healthcare, housing, childcare when they're putting in private hands. Um, we see these really um, terrible outcomes. And so uh, like our immediate demands are to bring these things back into public control and at the moment that takes the form of the state where you have um, existing levels of democratic engagement that can be ratcheted up over time. So yeah, like our immediate demands obviously like um, universal education, universal housing, um, universal health care, child care, um a really amazing public transport system um like i talk about like electric vehicles but like um, in this book a planet to win they talk about like this dream of like these fleets of electric buses running everywhere um it's super beautiful like those essential services that at various times in history have been in the hands of the state and then have slowly been chipped away to have what we have now like if um, I work in a local council and they basically can do nothing. Like, all it's, it's it's solely regulatory what they do. It's compliance and it's planning decisions and mowing. That's basically it. Um, there's nothing at London, and councils have historically, like, you know, had public housing and they've had public services and outreach and that kind of stuff. And it's all gone now. And our immediate demands are like, okay, well, we work with what we've got. And we start to bring these essential services back in as we start to think about like the more exciting stuff that could come back into, um, public hands like um, big parts of industry like big instance. parts of and industry. ice cream yeah.
2: yeah and ice cream and i think the other thing so if we're talking about like so john McDonnell and his like who was the shadow chancellor his like Corbyn's economics guru um came up with this came out with this paper a few years ago like alternative models of, of public ownership and so there's been a lot of thinking going into sort of like how to democratize public ownership and we it's take too long for us to try to go into it too much and it gets pretty wonkish but i guess The basic principle is that yeah, it's no. I don't. I don't think there's a huge appetite for a uh, out there and uh, like and for good reason for a kind of like um, bloated state apparatus that sure it delivers services but it delivers them poorly and is unresponsive to the needs of people. It's inefficient. It's kind of there's a lot of corruption going on. You know, obviously we need to think of ways to avoid that, and especially if you're going to take over the commanding heights of the economy and run them in public ownership you need to have that done democratically and that can't be entirely just through electing your parliamentary reps every couple of years and then expecting them and the civil service to just deliver it um so the civil service needs to be reformed and the like for instance like the boards of these uh, sectors need to be um, for instance elected by the unions or work, whatever workers representation in that industry they elect the, the best the right people to do that the people who've proven themselves to their other workers that they're serious about this stuff they get elected onto those boards they get elected into the positions where they're running that in the interests of their th- the immediate people that workers that are you know that they represent but also the community around them and that's like a thing you can't just solve with a formal mechanism you can't just say oh well, if we just implemented X policy, then we'd solve the problem of democratic ownership. It's a cultural thing and it's a thing of struggle that we'd be able to build the kind of capacity of those people to take over. But it's it's both, you know, and I think we, we can come up with mechanisms by which we d- actually put working class, ordinary people in charge of large sections of the economy and run them. And we also have big data on our hand now as well, which helps. But yeah, we, and we also have to be careful it doesn't go like, too far to the other direction
1: of, like, full direct democracy where every single person has to have a say all the time because I think a lot of people, you know, um, (laughs) would, uh, you know, find it quite difficult or even not want to have constant meetings all the time yeah everything it. which is a lot you know what the left is very good at this is something just i rail against when i've heard
2: so many leftists say oh if only we had you know like abolish wage labor because and everyone have more time to engage in like the political process and it's like that is the fucking shittest way to sell socialism it's sort of like well you don't have to rock up to your shit job but you're gonna have to go have you know Four hour meetings about, you know, your bus routes uh, every week. or, You know, like it just sounds like who wants to do that? That, yeah, is, yeah. that is not, that's, yeah, that's oh, all I'm, not what I'm fighting for.
0: Yeah, we, we love meetings and we go to a lot of meetings, but that's definitely not what, that's not what we're fighting for. But I, meetings I, love us. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's lots of different ways um, we can achieve the. like public ownership of the means of production right there's lots of different forms this can take some of the forms will be um, state ownership and then there's co-ops and then there's having representation on boards and thinking of all these different really exciting mechanisms by which people have a say in their workplaces and their communities and community organizations and like local utilities like electricity and water public transport like there's lots of different forms this can take and this is going to be a bit of experimentation over time um but if we have that kind of vision of a of a mosaic of different forms mm. i think that's more useful than just like oh yeah it's all going to be in state hands and, well, and, the and a the state's of-
2: already a mosaic i think that's the other thing is to say that like all this this patchwork of different institutions all engage in this in this complex way already and so it's to suggest that yeah like it's not you know it's just it's actually just building it's it's about institutions right it's about institutions and then it's about the kind of culture that fills those institutions and so both are experiments um but it's not like we have to start from nothing i guess is the thing that i'm i'm on this kind of warpath about at the moment the idea that we have to absolutely abolish everything that we know at the moment in order to institute some perfect socialist design sometime in the future because like and like you mentioned before very briefly you know with data we can use because
1: of the gap between you know 20th century forms of socialism and now and the technological increase between then and now we can experiment with and build upon things that have already been tried before Mm. and maybe didn't work then you know such Mm. as you know planning as an example and how you know it was you know the state bureaucracy at the time maybe couldn't handle that degree of planning but with the technology we have now with algorithms Mm. and everything and Mm. i know um one of the suggested readings will be the The people's republic people's republic of wall street walmart walmart people's republic of wall Wall street (laughs) sounds great too That's, that's right up that whole like socialized finance thing but yeah But yeah, so, you know, all this technology to try and
2: experiment with these things again
1: is very exciting.
2: Yeah, and I think there's two things about, on the level of planning as well, like, and and this is getting super full nerd town. um, That's what we're here for, baby. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's um, two things that, so there's that data thing and and the the point that the authors of the People's Republic of Walmart make is that Walmart internally, so... Not, not in terms of the way it deals with the market outside of itself but internally in terms of supply chains and, and all that sort of stuff is a bigger economy now than the USSR was in the s- 1970s. So its planning is already at that level and it's done all through data and it doesn't use price signals along the way. So it doesn't require a market to coordinate what's going on within Walmart. It just requires, da- it just uses data. Um, and I think you could absolutely see that as a potential um, tool, like I don't think any data is going to solve, like it's going to create socialism for us. We've got a rogue Max in here, just grabbing, right. just, just a rogue Max, just Max gra- has appeared. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it. Nice. uses splash, <laughs> Super effective. I'm working late at night. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and um, so, so that's yeah, you don't want to overemphasize that that that'll just solve all the problems of planning, but it's definitely a new tool that we've got. And then the other thing. Um, that I read recently, I thought it was a really good point. It might've been in that Sam Gindin article was the point about democracy, transparency ver- versus um, authoritarianism when it comes to planning. So they make the point, actually, no, I think it was the authors of uh, this Ana Navarra, um, Tisky Sour or something, uh, the authors of the People's Republic of Walmart, where they talk about, a lot of people say, oh, um, if you get rid of the market, um, you, you get authoritarianism because the problem was that it was the, the authoritarianism of the USSR, for instance, led to a lot of um, sectors of the economy, like individual factories or whatever, doing a lot of false reporting. So the information that supposedly comes from the market that, that the planning, like a planned economy couldn't get in terms of like how many units or this sort of stuff was being disguised by the fact that a lot of people were just fucking terrified about not meeting their targets, all this sort of stuff. And so the authoritarianism was a clampdown on the ability for that planned economy to actually work in a coherent way. Because if, you, if, if people aren't confident, you know, if, if people aren't able to actually give each other the correct information about what's going on in the economy... Then you're going to be the planned economy is just not going to work. So there's a really clear argument for it's not just authoritarianism is a, is bad morally. It also leads to a socialism that will fall over because it it, it eats the very thing that's going to allow it to, to happen, which is a democratic planning that people participate in.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And the other end of the spectrum, we have capitalism, which we know also doesn't take into account a whole lot of important information. Like we have all these externalities yeah, under capitalism, and we have um, companies and governments that are making decisions that aren't in the interests of people and are, you know, in the interests of profit. Mm. Um, so we have this; it kind of falls down on both ends. But you know, m- many of us will have come across um, examples where when you do give people a say. There's much better outcomes for like mm. for companies um, but mainly for the workers and for
2: people. Yeah. And I, I suppose on that externalities thing, right, I guess maybe before we've been going for what? So, we got a little bit of time. We won't won't bore you much longer, dear listeners, but um, I guess it would be probably good to – there's a couple of things I, I thought would be worth discussing and one of them is, um, you know – the response to climate change and how that works as a, as a, you know, the socialist perspective on that. And then the other thing I suppose just very briefly would be to talk a bit about international considerations because you, you know, the idea of beach socialism in one country, um, sounds very fraught. Um, but you know, I guess it's become quite fashionable to talk about the green new deal, whether you like the frame the, the, the name or not, it's not really the point, but, The question of a socialist plan for getting into like dealing with the climate crisis um is is a really good argument for for socialism right that it's actually through a planned economy through a democratic control over institutions um, and through a democratic control over industry that we can actually roll out the, the things that we need to to combat climate change, like the market. And if we leave it in capitalist control, they're just going to keep pursuing profits and that will always butt up against the things that, yeah, economists call um, externalities. Um, I guess, yeah, when we talk about climate change and like the
1: struggle towards socialism, we have to also, you know, it's not, just about overcoming climate change but it will be about having to um i guess survive it in the near term because we are already locked in like some pretty horrific shit that's going to come down the pipeline in the next like however many years so by redirecting you know if if it was a business as usual approach it will be just sacrificing well not sacrificing more like just whole swath swaths swath, swaths 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 yeah, of people swathes. <laughs> um of people just yeah. being whole parts of the just world wiped out and left behind um, whereas a big part of any socialist project will have to be to make sure that doesn't happen and that everyone is um, looked after or mm, mm. Um, at you know protected from that the impacts. Yeah. The impacts of the climate catastrophe that are coming. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which is a really terrifying sort of prospect of how to, how to manage that, right? That a planned economy and a democratically controlled sort of state would have to deal with this is a really like, oh, dang. You know, it's, just, it's <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a rut row.
0: <laughs> yeah. The first chapter in A Planet to Win, which I know I've been referencing a lot, but it was the last book I read. Um, <laughs> it's a good book, they people. They have this. The first chapter is this um, charming kind of visioning of um, a New Orleans after a few another future um, cyclone, mm. and um, you know, if if making the assumption that um, we've got a radically um, more equal society, we've decarbonized, we have all these electric buses running everywhere, we have these well set up. Um, evacuation centers where people are going Um, the cities have been redesigned in such a way that the cyclone um, was not nearly as um, impacting as previous ones the water was able to flow away really easily there's like mangroves to protect places Um, and this kind of vision of um what it could look like when we are dealing with these crises down the track. And you're right to point out that like we're locked into some degree of warming now. Um, And we, yeah, we've got, we know we have these um, big disasters that are coming. I mean, we've just come out of this um, horrific fire season Um, in Australia. Many people have died, Um, hundreds of homes lost. Like how are we going to deal with that next year Mm. and in Mm. decades to come. Mm. Um, And there's that. And then there's also like the really exciting things that could come from thinking about decarbonisation in a holistic way. Mm. So not just, you know, transitioning to renewable energy, but all the different things that would come into play if we're thinking like how are we going to get to a, a zero carbon world as quickly mm. as possible, and, and
2: a and a drawdown and ne- yeah. negative, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. well, one of my big uh, things of that would be you know massive reforestation programs. So bulk national parks, lots mm. more hiking. Yeah, Callum's opening up, a, opening up of opening up of climbing crags that fiend. are locked behind private land. But I won't yeah. get into that now. Not
2: not now, but there, there. Yeah, that's right. We're coming for your. You know. Yeah, there will be there will be yeah the people will, will have their parks yeah and that, and that <laughs> means like yeah
0: you know, to loop back around to talking about work that means like we need to employ a whole lot of people who are spending their 20 hours yeah. a week like out in the parks they're building yep. pathways yep. um they're planting trees, they're doing mine rehabilitation. Geoengineering. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's this other beautiful example in, in Planet to Win where they talk about getting um, an architect to um, design a dam And um, so, he makes this beautiful dam that has, like, this beautiful view and it brings all these people out to the countryside Mm. um, who wouldn't have previously um, gone there. And so, thinking about, like, the links between the new infrastructure that we're going to need to deal with climate change Mm. and how that's going to, like, you know, get people out into the countryside, like, on their little, like, little fleets of electric buses, like, so... You're, you're gonna be rail. the expert in the parks and I'll take the electric vehicles and um, Liam, what, what are you gonna be responsible Secret for police. in our decarbonised future? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, he's the super he'll be the supervisor of all the um the at, forest gulags. Uh, you know, at yeah, yeah, yeah. the Lantana. Climate <laughs> jobs, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> the
2: climate jobs. We, you know, come on we've done a rebrand Callum um, uh, yeah and I think that's a really so why I'm so interested in this um, conversation is partly because it's just like the absolutely fucking existential issue like the the historic like the issue of our lives so I suppose you should be interested in it but also because it really does blow up any naive ideas about um, you know like the the way Marx I think talked about the final stage of communism where we exited the realm of necessity and we enter the realm of freedom. So like he talks about like communist final communism, the stage is where, you know, everything we no longer have to just toil because to, to look at like to upkeep, like to keep ourselves going or whatever. We, we actually are free to just do whatever we want. And I don't think he ever meant that in the sense that there was a breaking point where we no longer had to like, Make food or anything like that, but it's. I think it's often been interpreted as like there's some point at which we do just like enter the realm of freedom. Like scarcity is no longer an issue anymore, so there's this whole post scarcity type thing. Um, but the climate, cri- like whether that was ever possible, is debatable. But the climate crisis really makes it quite clear that we're going to be dealing. We're going to be building socialism if we build the power now to do to to get to be. To be where we need to be, um, we'll still be building it under conditions of, you know, resource scarcity, um, you know, wildly fluctuating, you know, like the client, the question of like food production. All these sorts of things will become very, very serious questions, and so we'll have this ongoing question of how do we, how do we provide for ourselves as a society? Right? I do think that's going to be there, no matter how much technology we get, and I'm all for us, you know, the fully automated luxury thing but like there will still be some very basic things that just need to be done um and i guess the whole question is how can we build a, a society in a culture where people feel this is their kind of like world historic task like i i'm invested in the kind of society that will do these things because i know that it make it gives me a good life it gives my friends a good life it gives people i know a good life so i'm invested in solving this and putting in the hard yards and i do think like i don't i'm not a fan of the idea of a jobs guarantee but i think the idea of jobs programs and things where it feels meaningful that it's not make work it's not like oh well we'll just put someone to work in a thing it's like there will be so much work that needs to be done more work in the kind of future that we're talking about in some ways than currently there'll be a lot of meaningful work to be done though and if it's distributed properly and all this sort of stuff, it can be done in shorter hours than we're currently doing. But it's not like we won't have to have a society where people are... We, we just have to go out and build those seawalls or, you know, build the, like, fix the fucking solar panels and, you know, re- reorient our agricultural system and all these sorts of things. It's part of, I think, us taking very seriously that, that yeah, that socialism is a very, very real... Um, you know historical formation and like economy it's not it's not some kind of abstract dream like the socialism that we'll be able to win has to be thought about very concretely rather than the pure we started off with the beautiful dream and i think that dream's still achievable although the beach socialism thing is a bit harder when if if all the fucking Irakanji jellyfish you know keep coming further and further south um but i think it's it's incumbent upon us to build it. you know it's to build a society where people thrive despite that or even because of it
0: yeah i think a lot of people recognize the amount of work that needs to be done and see that as meaningful i've talked about this on the on the floodcast before, but when I talk to my colleagues, I'm like, what would you do if you didn't have to come to work? People are like, oh yeah, I'd like um, be gardening or I'd Mm. be like planting trees. Mm. And people can, when I go out and talk with members of the community, people recognize like there's so much work to be done. Mm. And this is where like some decentralization would be really exciting because you could say, okay, you've got this part of town and you've got all this work that needs to be done in this neighborhood, like, you know, drop into the community center, and you're given a job. Mm, Um, mm. We know that there's so much work to be done. And yeah, I think that is one of the really exciting things of thinking about like a Green New Deal in some form um, that there's all these other opportunities Mm. that come out of it. Mm. Um,
2: And reorienting not just to, and it's something that Alyssa Badistoni talks about a lot, is reorienting not just to like obviously green jobs like building wind farms or batteries or, you know, electric buses or whatever, but, um, or reforestation, that kind of a thing, but also care work and the kind of work that a community should be doing to make sure we're all living a good life. That's yeah. currently completely underfunded, yeah. you know, and, and then the workers who do that work of fucking have the real rough time of it um, and that we could create a, a society where that's valued and people who do that work, have good conditions for it and that it's, you know, no one's left out um, and it's not stressing about being looked after when they need to be. Yeah,
0: and thinking about that because that's the really important work that we need to be doing to look after each other but also because it's low-carbon work. Mm. And so you could be drawing people out of like bullshit jobs in high-carbon industries Mm. and putting them into meaningful work Mm. um, in other sectors. And people can see that, like people want that now Mm. um, but we're sort of stuck in this cycle where – that those jobs aren't available now um, and people see themselves having to rely on bullshit jobs so they can survive.
2: Absolutely. Shall we wrap it up with the international? Yeah, I'm not sure much what what to say apart from like this is a terrifying prospect, right? That you can't just win socialism in one country. It's got to be an international thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think this is where thinking about social movements and solidarity is really important. Like I think a lot about the people that I worked with when I was in Bangladesh. I worked with farmers who were directly affected by climate change, um, who were living um, often quite difficult lives, um, shut out of the political system, um, no union representation or... Collective representation um, in that way, definitely like collective work happening at very small scales. Um, but people quite scared um, to mm. be, you know, like it's dangerous to be um, a union organizer. Yeah. Um, in some parts of Bangladesh, it's dangerous to be an activist. It's an- dangerous to um, to be, uh, you know, in political parties that aren't in favour. Um, and so how mm. the work that we do here could impact on people in Bangladesh um, and thinking about like the kind of consumption that we're encouraging mm. um, and then how we could be sharing the immense wealth that we do have in Australia mm. to help people decarbonize. Like one of the um, things I was working on was um, – there was a as a coal fired power plant that's being built by India in Bangladesh, um, like obviously not with completely like benevolent motivations from the Indian government. Um, that some of the electricity would go back into India, and it's a way of like um, having power without it being marked against India's carbon oh, yeah. uh, emissions. Yep. Um, and the community there were like, had no idea what was going on. Um, they weren't going to be at, like, they weren't going to be employed, um, in this, um, coal factory. The coal was going to be shipped through this world heritage forest. And when I was there, um, there was talk that it would be Queensland coal, it would be Adani, mm. um, it would be the Adani coal mine coal that were going, was going to this Which Albo's
2: just plant. come out very firmly in favour of, by the way. Yeah, 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 So that's there. right. At so same time about, as about to announce a, yeah. like the zero carbon target in, yeah. by 2050, but supporting the Adani mine, yeah. to one Albo.
0: And thinking about these communities, they're like, but yeah, we need electricity because when we pump water out of the ground, it's full of arsenic and we mm. need an electric arsenic mm. pump. And yep. they were like, well, what else are we going to do? So, making sure that we have a pathway for these communities to be able to, um, you know, have that development yep. that leapfrogs yeah. the fossil fuel yes. beat, yeah, absolutely. Um, which yep. is really important. Yep. And then and then through that, um, thinking about ways to, you know, encourage people to work collectively. Mm, um, mm. And there's so much exciting work going on in Bangladesh, Um that with you know if people had time and they had the resources, like it could be incredible.
1: And one, you know, this is just a small example and maybe a naive example, but I've always sort of looked at Cuba's doctors program, where oh, they send out the best example. Um, you know, teams and teams of doctors to places in the world that need them. Um, and I think you know, imagine something. And that's Cuba, like a country that has been blockaded for fucking 70 plus years, almost no resources. Mm. Mm. Imagine something, what a country as rich as Australia could do, the resources we have and what sort of external, international programs like that you could do just beyond you know not just doctors it could be technologies it could be yeah you know all sorts of things
2: yeah and i mean cuba takes great pride in the fact that those doctors are going around saving lives in in all sorts of developing countries like it's a it's a point of national pride mm. right, and people want to do it right and
1: it's not ju- and it can be used not just as a um you know feel good thing but an actual like exporting of political
2: education yeah right well cuba also sends out you know, education, like teams to boost literacy in in third world communities. I think they actually even did it in a really poor remote Australian community at one point. I'll have to check that out. Um, But I think that actually did happen. Um, So, so like, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, uh, the Corbyn, like the the manifesto that um, got fucking didn't win um, last year, had had a bunch of those sorts of considerations in and around like um, exporting technology, like making it available, all the kind of um, you know know-how and whatever, f- so that it can be used by you know developing countries and so on. And I think the the argument there is a really good one. And and I think a lot of this stuff, like any any part of a socialist agenda that requires people to be altruistic, is always the bit that I think um, I think a lot of even lefties struggle with. The idea that, like, you could win people over to a program where we actually give some of our wealth away to someone else, right? Um, and part of the answer to that is um, you have to appeal to people's self-interest initially anyway and say, well, you're going to get, a, you know, people start to see the material gains they get. They're more likely to feel like they're comfortable to say, hey, yeah, no, we can, you know, it's that think that argument of like, oh, well, we can't give all this foreign aid if we've got people, homeless people on the streets. And it's like, yeah, well, if we're, if we're genuinely dealing with these sorts of things… That that criticism goes away but the other argument is um, that it helps us Australia or whatever country if you're the people in your region are living a good life it genuinely helps your country because if there's like economic political and ecological breakdown in these countries like how does that how does that impact on yours well know so many more climate refugees or political refugees or economic refugees so many more you know things to navigate in the world that will undermine our ability to live a good life here and you can say that the the more that we are being able to foster um you know better like give you know allow people to build a better life for themselves or help people build a better life for themselves in these in in other countries will, will benefit us and i think that's something that I think Bernie Sanders got criticised by the far left for saying, like, I don't believe in open borders. Um, but his argument was, no, people don't actually want to leave where they grew up. They, we need to have a program whereby we're trying to support people in, you know in other countries to look after them like to, to be able to build the economies not and it's not just like I mean US is the one that's just been constantly fucking with everyone's a bit like chance to do that so it's a bit rich coming from anyone in the States but like Bernie you know we'll, we'll, we'll give him a pass on that one but um, but i think that's an argument we do need to take up here i don't i don't think my my utopia doesn't include open borders not 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 anytime soon anyway because it's just unfeasible but the question is how do we build international solidarity build an aid program that isn't just completely fucking corrupt which is what we've currently got or give, all yeah, that giving, sort of giving money to the USAID yeah the right France and all these and all that fake-ass <laughs> NGOs where more than 50% of the money you give them just ends up in like you know their op- like staffing costs and stuff rather than actually delivering programs and you know those sorts of things like I do think we need to be be quite real about this it's in the same way as we've been talking about getting real about some of the other aspects of socialism I do think that international dimension is something we have to not just have like real fake answers to?
0: Yeah, um, I think w- like one of the tactics that we're trying to use, right, is to um, remind people that we have more in common with each other than we do with like the CEO of these big companies mm, yeah. and to say we're not going to break the power of these big companies. We're not going to break the power that they have here if we're not also breaking the power that they have abroad. Yeah, And um, like it's not sufficient that these companies could, just go okay well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do business in australia which isn't going to happen and go elsewhere like remembering that the the kinds of um, experiences that we have here in australia are connected to how companies are functioning abroad Mm. as well Mm. Um, i was thinking about how The federal government have been trying to discipline firms who um, are swayed by environmental protests. And one of the things they're trying to do is use um, federal contracts and say, okay, well, you won't get a federal contract if you or someone crucial in your supply chain has... um, has been swayed by an environmental protest, um, which is kind of the Mm. opposite of like, usually we hear about this concept of social procurement where companies are like, okay, well, we want this particular um, social good. And so we're going to say to companies, we're only going to give you contracts if you... um, Like, for example, the Queensland government um, requires firms to have a domestic violence policy. Mm -hmm. And so how could we be doing that to say, okay... Um, Mm -hmm. you and anyone who's functioning in your supply chain, like if you are fucking over workers in Bangladesh, you'll never get a federal contract. Like you want to um, build our hospital, you want to build our um, fleet of little um, buses that are going out to the forest. You want to run our fucking ice
2: ice cream, you know, free ice cream stalls. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's nationalized. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. (laughs) And because these companies, like so many of these companies are working internationally, um, Mm. that could be a powerful tool and building up that solidarity here and saying like, yeah, we need to work together with workers abroad if we're going to, um, be disciplining these companies and making sure that mm. they're working in our interests
2: mm. disciplining companies um is <laughs> is the <laughs> name of the game people disciplining them and then eventually um, abolishing them, <laughs> them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah should we maybe end there with maybe do people want to have a last you know bite at the cherry of socialism Callum? you look pensive. Oh,
1: I was yeah, I was just going to say I think it's a sort of a good place to wrap it up um, in terms of you know final thoughts. I guess you know it's important to think about these things because we want to fight for something not just against something. Yeah. And that is a much more powerful motivator for people because if they know, believe in something. You know, you look at the Bernie Sanders rallies and there's, you know, tens of thousands of people there because they believe in the vision that his campaign is articulating, I think that's a very powerful thing. Um, does anyone else have Final thoughts?
0: Yeah, I think like we've we've sort of like gone a quite big picture and then like come down to like some specific tactics and ideas. Um, but in the immediate future, like what are we dreaming of? We're dreaming of a world where everyone has a home. And, um, you know, if you're disabled you can get down to the bus um, and you can easily get into the library and you get to the places you want to go um, there's no barriers to education if you're or uh, in the country or if you're in the city you're able to get free education you're able to get free health care um, and I think for a lot of people like we we can imagine what this would mean for us and we can imagine what this would mean for people that we love um, and you know, even if we're if that's what we're focusing now, um, that is really exciting. Um, and remembering that those are the building blocks for the bigger things that we're dreaming of mm. as well for for full beach social uh, beach socialism liberation. <laughs> um, these are the building blocks that um, that are going to get us there.
2: Yeah, that's that's great. That's that's um, that's perfect. I guess all I would say is that um, socialism got good again. Oh, woo so you know it's like there's it's not for nothing that like you know you've got someone like Bernie Sanders now the most popular front run like the front runner for the democratic primaries openly saying he's a democratic socialist it's not you know now's the time for us to not be too scared about I mean whether you use the word or not you know that's probably a tactical thing out in uh you know depending on who you're talking to what context or whatever but these dreams, these goals, um, are things that I think have have finally come back around as something that we can see as a serious political project. Um, and in Australia, it's it's very nascent; it's early days, because the socialist movement's been um, kind of bogged down in either labor left nonsense or ultra left trot nonsense but now i think there is scope for a democratic socialist um vision to to enter into australian politics and australian discourse and i think it's about time we do that with a lot of confidence because we know that that's this is the project that that you know has the best chance of um uh like creating a society that's worth living in and that might actually survive the climate crisis. But I won't wrap it on because that will be the, you know, how we get there will be the subject of the next floodcast hot, no, was it flood summer nights? Summer days. (laughs) Well, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, thanks Uh, for (laughs) tuning
1: in. Um, Stay tuned for the third episode Revenge of the Proletariat where we sort (laughs) of, uh, you know, link, link the first episode of, you know, the hellscape we're in now with, the dream of episode two so the tactics and what we're actually going to do to get divide
2: the uh what is it the the nightmare of capitalism by the quotient of our dreams and multiply it by something hope
1: so thanks for listening catch you next time thanks everyone
2: sweet dreams